Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a few verses uh, in Second Peter. So I'm going to read those verses, um, and we can read those together, and then I'm going to pray that God would help us see what it is He's trying to tell us in this text. So um, we're starting in Second Peter, verse one, chapter one, verse one. It says this: Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Let's pray. God, I'm asking that you would help us um, understand these words. Not, not that we would simply come away with more data in our heads, more information, but that you would speak to our hearts and that we would come out knowing you more. So would you speak to us out of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I love New Year's, um, and it, I think I love it because it always feels like a bit of a fresh start, right? You, you start, you, you end one year, and, and you look at the new year, and it's just, for me, it's always full of vision and possibilities, and I'm the eternal optimist, and I'm always going, hey, what could come in this new year, and what could we do? I, I don't usually make re- resolutions myself, but I'm constantly asking the questions of what, what could we do in the next year? And so I'm really, really excited about this. But But for some of us, New Year's actually are hard things. They're hard times. And they're hard because sometimes we're carrying wounds from the past year, and and we're just not sure if they're going to continue on to the next, right? So so some of us are looking forward, and and some of us are are feeling fears. And and either way, we're approaching the New Year with some hope and with some anxiety and probably, honestly, with a little bit of both. Because the entire season is couched in one word, uncertainty. As I look at 2019, I just don't know what's going to happen. Neither do you. Neither do you. And when I think about uncertainty, um, Jonathan Franzen's uh, uh, epic novel, uh, Freedom, just popped in my mind as we were talking about this. And and if you haven't read it, this is a a beautiful, tragic, complicated, captivating, and honestly haunting story. It's a a story about Walter and Patty Berglund. And most of the story is just following through their life. We, and we see in this tangled story, it's full of a lot of hope and promises as Walter and Patty come together and meet each other and they, they get married and they, they form a home and they begin to chase after uh, hopes and desires and dreams and positions and they, they, their family grows as they have two new kids and, and life just looks like, it looks beautiful from a lot of the ways. They're, they're living the upper class, middle class life in a nice, nice suburban neighborhood and everybody looks in and goes, hey, look at the Berglunds. But as, as this book weaves this complicated story, we see Walter and Patty, be, they begin to grow apart. And small little cracks become canyons between them. And as their lives separate, they eventually run to illicit lovers trying to fill the gaps. And Walter and Patty find themselves um, really just on the edge of destruction. And their marriage implodes towards the end of the book in a, in a way with a violence that just shakes you as you read it. The book picks up from this point on six years later. So six years have gone on with Walter and Patty separated with their own lives. 
And, and they both walk through tragedy and they both walk through um, life together or life separate for these six years. And, and towards the end of the book, they're thrust back into, their, their stories are thrust back into each other. And Walter and Patty decide to try again. And what looks like a beautiful story of redemption, they come back together and, and the book closes one year later as they're about to move from the home that they are to a new future and a new possibility. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's, it's fresh, it's new, it's beautiful. But the book just ends. And it ends, and I tell you, as I, as I read it, it was haunting because all I could think of, will they make it this time? Will they make it this time? Or are the coming years just going to be a reminder of the past? Are the coming years going to bring beauty or are they going to bring devastation? Are, are the next years of their life going to bring new, new hope materialized or are they going to bring fears realized? And we're left wondering. We're left asking these questions. Will they make it? And honestly, that feels like a lot of the questions that we sometimes ask in life, right? As we close one season and enter into a new one, we're asking, are we just destined to repeat the mistakes of the past or is there new life ahead? What will come from the uncertainty that we feel? And here's a question I was pondering as I thought through this. Is do I and do we in this room have what it's going to take to face whatever 2019 is going to bring? You see, for some of us, 2019 is going to bring uh, a beautiful things. For some of us, that the hope is that that brings wedding bells, maybe a new child or grandchild. It, it might bring a graduation, a promotion, a new opportunity. 2019 could be awesome. But 2019 might also bring a lot of pain. It might bring the continuance of, health, of financial challenges, maybe health challenges that are unresolved. And maybe that relational tension that you've been living with for a while, it's been low grade. You're afraid it's going to start erupting. Do we have what we need to walk through 2019? Well, it's this question that drove me to this text in Second Peter. It was this question that drove me to this text. Let's read it again. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, Peter wastes no time getting to his point. There's no cute introductory illustrations. There's not just, there's not a, a, a few, just a little bit of a, a warming up period. Like he just jumps straight at it. And this point dominates the book of Second Peter. And what he says, he outrageously asserts that Christians, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, do not lack anything that they will need in this life. Wow. Wow. I mean, look at, look at what he says here. He, Peter doesn't say that, that God will grant these things. He says he has already granted them, right? You see that in the text? He doesn't say that it's for some people only for the super spiritual. In verse 2, he says that we have a shared faith on level playing field with the apostles because it's not based on what we do. It's based on the grace of God. So this isn't for some people only. It's for everybody. And it's not based on wishful thinking. This is anchored in the divine power of the creator of the universe. So this is incredibly good news. 
Incredibly good news. No matter what 2019 brings, whether it's good or bad, hopeful or haunting, whatever's coming, the same God who speaks and stars begin to burn, the same God who says a word, Saturn gets rings and oceans fill, that God with that power has already given you everything you need for 2019. So I guess the sermon's over. <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how do you add to that, right? So uh, have, have, have a happy Sunday. You're dismissed. Now, the reason you're not leaving is twofold. One is, there's never been a sermon this short in the history of Frontline. <laughs> and number two, you're waiting for the catch. What's the catch, Jeff? What's the catch, Peter? Because if we're honest for a moment, we hear this word and we don't believe it. This feels like cheap religious platitude. This feels like something that I would get on a greeting card, that I have on a coffee mug. This feels like something I buy on a wall hanging from Mardell's. Why do we feel this way? Why is it that we hear this and we just don't believe it? I, I think it's this, that we can imagine, you and I can imagine a metric ton of possible things that could come our way that we don't feel equipped to handle. Am I right? We feel so many possibilities that could come that we just don't, we don't have what we need. We lack what we need to face what's coming or what could potentially come. If good things are coming our way, we're afraid. If that opportunity opens up, if we get married, if we've got this new child, we're, we're left going, are we going to have the courage, the stamina, the time, the wisdom, the knowledge, the experience to make it? And if tragedy comes, if hard things come, we feel the lack of faith. We feel the lack of resources. We don't think we're holy enough, strong enough, patient enough, and we don't think we've got what it takes. In fact, it would seem even biblical to recognize this lack because the scriptures talk about us as being frail beings. So in light of our experience of this lack, how can what, how can what Peter say here be true? And to answer that question, we need to recognize that no matter how much we doubt this passage, the original audience had way more reason to doubt that claim. The original audience that Peter's writing to had way more reason to doubt this claim. You see, both 1st and 2nd Peter were written to the same audience. It's a group that Peter calls in 1st first, first Peter the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, here's what happened. After Jesus rose uh, again uh, from the dead and ascended to heaven, the church began to form in Jerusalem and it began to grow such that the Jewish leaders around began to persecute this new believers, thinking they were a religious sect that was going to upset Judaism of its day. And so they began to per per persecute. And what started with imprisonment soon turned to bloodshed, and that bloodshed scattered the people throughout the region. So fleeing for their lives, these Christians were dispersed into new places, new countries, new regions, new cities, living in places that weren't their home. They were living as exiles, exiles of the dispersion. The persecution they faced in Jerusalem, they ran away from, and they ran straight into the persecution of the Roman Empire. And what we can be very sure about is this. That at every step, this ragtag group of believers felt their lack. They had no power. They had no resources. They had no wisdom. They had no favor. They had no influence. 
Honestly, it sounds a lot like us, huh? Sounds a lot like us. See, anniversaries are really weird things. And, uh, and I don't just mean wedding anniversaries. I mean anniversary of anything that's happened. If you've, if you've walked through beautiful things that, you, that day when that, when that calendar comes around, or the day when the calendar comes around that year, and, and you kind of almost bring those hopes back into that day. Uh, and, and for some, you've walked through tragedy, and so you, you really lament that day. And every, every year it turns around, there's just a shadow cast over the entire day. So for my family, December is just one of those months. I don't know what else to say. It's just, it's one of those months. It's, it's full of some of the most beautiful reminders of God's mercy that my wife and I have ever experienced. It's, it's the month that we celebrate our wedding anniversary. December 14th, 2002, we were married. And yes, I got that right without pausing on camera. We celebrate 16 years this year. It was amazing. It was beautiful. It's wonderful. I mean, it hasn't been all perfect, but it's been beautiful. It's been wonderful. It's been a grace of God in my life. Three years ago, my wife published her first novel, and she started a new career. And it's been a blast to watch what God's done through that and how she's been chasing these dreams. That's a lot to celebrate in December. But, but December is also filled with some of the most haunting memories of some of the most darkest parts of our story. Because on our anniversary, December 2005, I woke up in ICU after a doctor pulled a clot out of my heart. 27 years old, leveled by a heart attack, and we spent the next 10 days in hospitals trying to figure out what was going on. And every year, I just can't, I can't tell you, I celebrate on the 14th and I lament on the 14th. Eight years later, after I'd gotten a diagnosis of congestive heart failure, my, my doctor walked into the room, and I'll never forget this day. Um, she walked in, she goes, Jeff, it's not getting any better. And we're going to need to implant a device in your chest. And so I, I, a few days later, I had an ICD implanted in my chest to keep my heart from stopping. Every year, December comes around, and I remember the good, and I remember the hard. And this year was interesting because we walked in with a lot of anxiety because we were waiting on some test results. And while we weren't sure that there was a real strong reason to fear, that uncertainty and that past was gnawing at us. And I can assure you one thing, that in every single one of those Decembers, my wife and I felt a profound sense of what we lacked. Every single one of them. I mean, when we got married, we had watched marriages implode and dissolve or just fade into to nothing. And we, didn't, we weren't smart enough to figure this out. When we started this new career in her writing, we didn't know what we were stepping into. And as we walked through the valley of the shadow of death in ways that we never expected, we felt our lack. And this year, I'll just be honest, we lacked a lot of courage. And we lacked a lot of faith. And you know what I'm talking about here. Because you've had these moments too, haven't you? These moments in which, whether it's good or bad, you just don't know if you've got what it's going to take. You see, in this room right now, there are people that are going to experience some of the highest highs of your life in 2019. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a, a year that you look back at and go, look at what God did. But for some in this room right now, 2019 is going to bring a lot of pain. And deep down, I think we all recognize that there are things that could come our way that we don't think we're ready or capable to face. So, 
how can this claim of Peter be true? If we feel this lack this deeply, if it's so tangible, then how can this promise be true? But the good thing is Peter's not done. So let's keep reading. Let's look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And he says this, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. <clears throat> so according to Peter, these all things that we need to face life are through the knowledge of him who called us. He isn't talking about something we possess in ourselves. He's not talking about skills or gifts or, or superpowers that we have underneath. We're not, we're not like Superman or Superwoman and underneath this kind of uh, facade of weakness, we actually can like stop bullets with our chest and jump over the Devon Tower. That, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that in us are these super things. He's saying that it's based on something that we know or at least can know. But does this actually help? Well, it only helps if we actually know what Peter means when he talks about knowledge. You see, Peter's writing to a culture that's fully immersed in a philosophy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that truth or knowledge was some kind of secret, hidden, spiritual, mysterious thing out there that only a few people had access to. And the goal was to, to step into that reality and avoid the bad things of this physical earth. So ideas and truth were good, physical was bad. And what it enabled people to do was it enabled them to begin to recognize reality or recognize truths and affirm what is good without embodying what was good. And this actually began to infect the church. The church began to think more highly about these spiritual truths that they could affirm rather than being the truth among the people. And so this is why 2 Peter is taking this on so hard. He's not going to allow them to think that knowledge is merely, merely um, these, these high and lofty things out there. So 11 times in the short book, he comes back and uses the word knowing, knowledge, or know in some form. Because he's directly taking on this idea of Gnosticism. See, the Gnostics held that knowledge was ethereal. It was spiritual. It was a secret or hidden wisdom. But in our day, what is knowledge? Well, it's data. It's data. It's stuff I put on a hard drive. It's information I read in a textbook. But neither of these is what Peter's talking about. Neither of these is what he's talking about. Let's look back at that verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Knowledge of him. See, Peter isn't talking about secret truths or data. He's not talking about mere information. Peter's talking about a relational knowing of God himself. A relational knowing. He isn't talking about knowledge about. He's talking about knowledge of. Do you see the difference? It's not knowledge about God. It's knowledge of God. He's saying that we need to know a person. We need to know him. Seven years ago, my, my family and I, we moved to Oklahoma. I'm, I'm an Okie, born and bred from, from near the panhandle. So I'm a, uh, I'm a farm kid, and, and I love getting back to Oklahoma. So it was fun moving back kind of close to home. Uh, but for my kids, this was, I mean, they visited Oklahoma, but that was it. They, they grew, they were both born in Oregon and spent a few years in Colorado before we moved here. And so uh, moving to Oklahoma came with some necessary adjustments come storm season. And if you've moved to Oklahoma from any place else in the world, you know what I'm talking about. Because these things are not 
like anything I've experienced anywhere else. Come storm season, my girls would freak out about thunder and lightning, thunder and lightning, and thunder and lightning. And, and every night they would ask as they go to bed, like, is it going to thunder and lightning tonight? Is it going to thunder and lightning tonight? I'm like, oh, you just go to bed. Your parents in the room know what I'm talking about, don't you? And I can tell you, I was so rational with them, and I was so good with explaining, hey, kids, can light hurt you? No. Can sounds hurt you? No. Can lightning get you when you're in your house? No. Then go to bed. But it's thunder! And they were wailing would begin all over again. So after trying to explain, and I would love to say that these were my most patient moments as a father, but they weren't. My wife is a grace to our girls in, way, in lots of ways, and this was one of them. And, and she would look at me and just go, I think it's time to go lay down on their floor. And so what I would do is I'd go grab the pillow and I'd go lay down on the floor at the foot of their bed. Now, side note, 40-year-old backs and concrete slabs do not mix. Many trips to the chiropractor afterwards. But what was fascinating was that my simple presence in the room all of a sudden changed the situation. Where my kids were freaked out, their wailing became a whimper, and then finally drifted off into sleep. Simply because I was in the room. My, my information about storms made no difference. It wasn't, it wasn't more information about how storms work and why houses are built the way they are. It had nothing to do with it. They had no more information about me. They didn't find out, oh, dad's a meteorologist. I should be safe. No, they, they didn't know that. They knew that I loved them, and they knew that I was with them. That's what made the difference. It wasn't knowledge about anything. It was knowledge of a father who loved them. The key to the kind of knowledge that Peter is talking about is not data about. It's knowledge of. Now, I can hear the objection in the story I just told. My kids actually weren't any safer from the storm, were they? <laughs> Big bad dad in the room. No, they weren't safer. The storm was going to do what the storm was going to do. It was going to last as long as it wanted to last. It was going to destroy what it wanted to destroy. There was nothing changed about my situation on the floor. So how then, preacher, can you tell me that knowing more is somehow going to get me through what's coming? Well, Peter makes one more move in this argument, and it's a vital one, so let's look at it. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now listen to verse 4. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This passage, this verse right here is a key to the entire passage. All of what he has been promising is possible because God is a promise-giving, promise-keeping God. He promised to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden that he was going to repair the brokenness of the fall, and he did. He promised Abraham that he was going to make him into a mighty nation that was going to bless the entire world, and he did. He promised to David that one day a king would come that would make all of the thrones pale in comparison, and he did. 
He promised to Israel he would never abandon them, and he never did. And he promised to Mary that a baby in her virgin womb would redeem all of mankind, and that was Jesus. And if I go through the scriptures, I can see thousands of other promises. He's promised to us that he would send us the spirit, and he did. He promised peace to the troubled, and that's what he does. He promised grace to the broken. He promised to be our king, our shepherd, our father, our priest. And the promises go on and on and on and on. But in this text, there are two promises that are made that we need to, we need to look at. The first is the promise of rescue, and the second is presence. You see, Peter here says, he refers to us as having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Peter's reminding us that God's work in us, that through his work in us, we will escape the corruption from the world. Now take note, he doesn't say we'll escape from the world, does he? He doesn't say that we're going to be sucked up out of this world, out of the troubles, out of the striving, out of even the good things and just separate it off and go put it in a, in a safe place where there's no harm. He says that he will be with us in, in escaping us or helping rescue us from the corruption that invades our lives and the things we encounter. Make no mistake, this escape isn't our doing. Throughout the text, it's not that we're good enough to get out of the problems and the corruption of the flesh. It's he rescues us. No matter what we face in the coming year, if it's good, you're going to be tempted to trust in yourself. You're going to be tempted to live as if God isn't really necessary for life and ignore the people around you. There's corruption that comes even through the good things, and God has promised to be with you to rescue you from that corruption. And if what's coming are bad things, hard things, suffering things, difficult things, you're going to be tempted to despair, to let fear deteriorate your love of God and your love of others. And it's going to wall you off from the people that God has given you to love. And you're even going to wall yourself off from God if he'll let you. But he promises in this text, he is there to rescue you from the corruption. God has promised our rescue. But he's also promised his presence with us. It's interesting here what Peter calls us. He refers to us as partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. And it brings to mind the, the prayer of Jesus in John 17, his high priestly prayer, right before he's about to go to the cross. He prays to the Father. And, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to read the passage right now. But, but in summary, what he prays is he prays to his Father. He says, Father, you've sent me to display your glory and to come near to those that are broken. And that I've done. And now, in the same way that you and I are one, can you make them one with each other, and can you make them one with us? And there's this promise in this beautiful prayer that God, Jesus prays that we would fully understand the love of God by participating in the love of God. This is what Peter means by partakers of the divine nature. We are brought into the goodness of God, not because we deserve it, but because he is a precious, a promise-keeping God. He comes to us. See, he's not, referring, he's not referring to mere abstractions. Peter's not talking about elusive ideas and mere datum. He's talking about an active, relational experience of all that God is. This is a hope from God, but it's a participatory hope because he's active in his presence with us in all things. You see, 
when he talks about the knowledge of God and he talks about the promise of us knowing God, the promise of us knowing God is us having God. We're not looking for something out there. We're not looking for something else that would be enough for us. We need him. Because when he says we have all things that pertain to life and godliness, he means that because we have him. He is the all things. He is the all things. He isn't calling us to know more about God. Guys, he's not calling you to another Bible study. I love Bible studies. There's some great ones out there. But that's not what he's calling us to here. He's not calling you to read another theology book. And boy, if you see my office up here, you know I love theology books. I'm not knocking theology, but that's not what he's inviting us into. He doesn't want us to know merely more about God because there's a world of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a world of a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And God knows that we don't have in ourselves what it's going to take to step through what, brings, what life brings at us because he meant that we would never be able to be independent on our own. He didn't give us the ability. He didn't expect us to just be strong enough. He gave us himself. Karl Barth says it this way in his beautiful book, The Humanity of God. In Jesus Christ, there is no isolation of man from God or of God from man. Let me read that again. In Jesus Christ, there is no isolation of man from God or of God from man. Rather, in him, we encounter the history, the dialogue in which God and man meet together and are together. The reality of the covenant mutually contracted, preserved and fulfilled by them. Jesus Christ is in his one person as true God, man's loyal partner, and as true man, God's. He is the Lord humbled for communion with man, and likewise the servant exalted to communion with God. See, this is the profound implication of the incarnation. We just celebrated this at Christmas. That Jesus is God come to us, taking on humanity so that he can take us up into the divine to experience all the fullness of who he is. And he gives us his spirit to be with us forever. And this is deeply personal, guys. Because as I've learned, as, as my wife and I have walked through all these many Decembers of our life, we never had what we, what we needed to get, make it through. In ourselves, we never did. We were never smart enough, wise enough, good-looking enough, strong enough, patient enough. We were never any of those things. But in each moment, in each beautiful and devastating moment, he was there. And in each of those moments, he invited us into knowing him and being present with him. You see, he was with us. We felt it. And that, friends, was enough. That was enough. So what's this mean for 2019? It means I don't know what's coming for you. I don't know if 2019 is going to be that year that you look back on and go, wow, that was awesome. Or if 2019 is just going to be a one you just want to bag up and forget ever happened. I don't know. But I do know this, that to every single one of us in this room, 
those of us that call ourselves Christians and those that don't, don't yet believe the claims of Jesus, the call is the same. We are called to know him. We are called to draw near to him. We are called to experience the reality of his divine presence for us. And he's here to teach us how to rest in this great promise. Because drawing near now, drawing near to the Lord now, is going to have you ready for that day, whatever it brings. If you're not yet a Christian, this calls for you too. I don't know what the rest of your life brings, but I know that Jesus has a standing offer for you to come near to him and he will rescue and be present with you. So for those of us that have trusted Jesus, I say this, let's learn to trust him more. Because no matter what 2019 brings, no matter what the years that follow bring, he is enough. He is the all things that you need to face all the things that you will face.